BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, computer chips, ice chips, and potato chips. Can corporate diversity plans go bad and become the very discrimination they seek to eradicate? Should organizations that refuse to sign anti-racism pledges be afforded an opportunity to help shape those pledges or even disagree with some of their elements? Or is their refusal automatic disqualification from the conversation. And finally, in our Courage or Cringe segment, we'll take a look at some bold diversity headlines in the industry, and as always, we'll call them just like we see them. All this and more on this episode of TDR. All right, Jesus, lots of eclectic subject matter to tackle uh, where should we start? Which of the way, chips? We, we definitely have an eclectic title <laughs> for sure, so that's pretty fun. But let's start with Microsoft. Computer chips. Computer chips, that's All right. right. Let's start with uh, computer, so chips. computer chips. So um, they were recently on the news. So on September 9th, the U.S. Department of Labor contacted Microsoft. Um, and this was in response to the announcement of Chief Executive uh, Satya Nadella made on June 23rd regarding their initiatives to bolster diversity, right? which included two, two primary things. One is investment of about $150 million. And most importantly, I think it related to this letter, was in doubling the number of black employees in high-ranking positions by 2025. All of this was in response, or part of the response to yeah. everything that went down with George Floyd this summer. Exactly, right. So this is part of the movement that you saw across the board, not only of of a business coming out and being supportive uh, through social, et cetera, and in their PR efforts, but also... Companies like Microsoft sort of taking a deep look at themselves and saying, hey, what are we doing to address some of our own diversity gaps and, and creating more opportunity? Um, and, and this was a, a direct response of that, right? Okay. But the letter they received did suggest that the initiative appeared to imply that employment action may be taken on the basis of race. And more importantly, asked Microsoft to prove its efforts to improve opportunities were not illegal based race decision, right? Something that Microsoft immediately responded and said, no, that's not the case. It'll be based on merit, but obviously brings up this bigger question as it relates to if you are, frankly, trying to address this big of a gap, and especially in, in this kind of sort of high-ranking position, specifically tailored to or trying to address a gap with black employees, then it does put you a little bit of a stick situa- sticky situation, right? Now, one thing that is an, I think an interesting data point for us to, to think about as we talk about the subject is that according to Microsoft's 2019 diversity report, diversity report 
just 4.4% of their U.S. workers at the company um, and affiliates, such as LinkedIn, were black, with less than 3% of any, U.S. In any level. In any level, correct. 4.4%. 4.4%. Okay. Which is really, really small, right, for a population that is uh, 13, 13%, yeah. right? While less than 3% of their U.S. executives, directors, and managers were black. So, you know, Microsoft sees this of themselves and says, hey, listen, we have a problem here. We have a big, major, major gap in representation of, of, of black uh, employees within our organization and even our affiliates, if you even add them all together. And we want to do something about it, right? And we're going to commit that we're going to double that amount in high-ranking positions in the next basically five years. And then here comes the U.S. Department of Labor say, wait a minute. How exactly How do you do that and also not discriminate against race? So, sure. I guess your, your, first, your first comment, Charlie. I was joking earlier that this is the kind of thing I'm sure that the general counsel from Microsoft loves to wake up to in the morning, right? Some A letter, two-pager from uh, the Department of Labor about potential violations of federal law. Um, yeah, I mean, look, first of all, stating the obvious, I'm not a lawyer, and I wonder about how often these kinds of notices occur, right? Do these things, is it fairly standard to get one of these if you're a big corporation? Like, is the Labor Department always looking at you? Because some of the framing I've already read is that this thing is on the heels of the earlier, um, basically a memo, which I think now is actually a mandate. Now I think it has graduated to be a mandate uh, from the Trump administration looking to end certain kinds of diversity training um, by federal employees. And so if, if you put it together with that, does it seem like it's part of a greater narrative? And I just honestly don't know because I don't right. know if it, these things happen It's kind of hard not to connect those two, right? And, and by the way- Well, it, it is, but to be fair, I don't know if, again, if like, do these guys send these kind of letters out under any presidency often? Are people always yeah. kind of askew of things or is it literally related? Uh, potentially, yeah. Yeah, we, don't, we know, don't know the answer. But going back to what you were saying about this, this announcement from the White House, you know, the initial uh, sort of- um, call was just for federal agencies to stop using certain types, or at this point, I think it was all diversity training, but, but specifically because there were there were concerns about certain types of diversity training as being sort of anti, just sort of anti-racism training. But it's now actually expanded to block federal contractors from promoting, ra- you know, radical ideologies, which is part of their issue that they have with it, that divide Americans by race or sex. So, right. That that announcement, that memo, now it continues to expand in scope. And by the way, this is part of the of the issue, of course, with Microsoft, as they are one of the huge vendor. One of the yeah, one of the vendors for for um you know for the government. So yeah, you're right. It, we don't know to what degree these things are constantly being sort of sent out, but it definitely feels in this current moment as very interesting timing of the of it all. Um, in terms of, I don't, I wouldn't call it a counter movement, but it, but I also would not not call it a counter movement because it definitely yeah. feels that well, way I think from a what, timing standpoint. What, what gives credence to the idea that it is a a counter movement is the dating on all this stuff. So the the um the statement that uh, uh, Satya, <clears throat> I'm sure we're both pronouncing his last name right, but Satya uh, or his full name Satya Nadella, I think is his name. Yeah. The the statement he made was in June, and the letter was like September. Right. Right. So a lot of time went by of like you know did this just hit your radar or whatever. Um, so there is some evidence, I think, although circumstantial, to kind of point to the fact that this is all related. And the vendor move does not surprise me at all because that's where a lot of the sort of you know newsworthiness or buzziness of this, if it is a strategic thing on, on behalf of the Trump administration, 
it's going to get a lot more play if you're saying, hey, not only is it for people who work here, but it's also for people who get money from the federal government that we don't want that kind of influence. So I get that as part of a broader strategy if that's the case. I think in this case, you know, for me, the very first thing I thought about was, you know, CEOs have a real tightrope to walk, right? I mean, and they probably always do, but maybe more so now. Because on one side, you definitely want to appear that you're taking action. That's been the thing that has consistently come up in all of our conversations around the pre- and post-George Floyd reality. Everybody, I think, intellectually said the same things and even thought the same way, but the level of urgency and the execution of that into actual tangible steps, that's, the, to me, the point of the pivot or the difference between before this summer and after this summer. And so I think that you want to appear that you're taking action but the action that you're taking in certain cases can run you afoul of, you know, current law and potentially taking opportunity away from other groups, right? Other, other minority groups even, potentially. So the question that the Labor Department is asking, which I'm legitimately curious about, is when he says we're going to double. Now, it, they're tiny numbers. Like, you yeah. can't fall off the ground, right? So you've got, like, four <laughs> black executives there. Can you get to eight? Like, right, so right. I, there, I have no doubt that he probably thought of it that way and said, like, yeah. come on. we got to be able to figure this out. But nevertheless, I think it's a legit question to say, how exactly are you going to do this? Because I think there's other people who have a, a say in that determination. Yeah, no, you're right. I think the, the, my first point of reaction is that type rope. Because you're entirely right about that. I think the intent of the announcement that the CEO made makes a lot of sense, makes it very actionable, makes it measurable, which is, I think, one of the issues that, you know, a lot of times, and, and especially in these moments you've already seen in, in cases where people come out, organization come out very strongly in support of addressing diversity gaps. But then when you look at the, well, what exactly are you going to do? A lot of it sort of still falls within intent, but never actually gets past intent into like action. And then more importantly, like how to make sure that that action has real positive effect, because that's, you also seen a lot of that, right? You could, you could talk about in the context of sports and, and some of the, the, the sort of the, the usage of, of phrases in people's jerseys saying, well, that's an action, but is it, does it have a meaningful impact, impact down the line? I don't know, maybe from an awareness standpoint, maybe, but this is one where it's very measurable, it's very actionable, but then you can see how immediately it sort of puts you in this gray area. Um, I, I definitely have a lot more um, concern about the timing of all of this. Sure. Um, as it, it definitely feels like it's 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 trying. You think to it's punitive take, in a way? Yeah, yeah, it definitely feels punitive mm -hmm. in a way because we're still talking about if you if you believe, and I don't think there's a reason why not to believe Microsoft's diversity report, how small the percentages of their employees across the board. I mean. Yes, it's important from an executive level, but the fact that for their entire workforce, it's only is less than 5% uh, that is black for Microsoft. Like that's a massive, massive problem in recruiting and development and, and, and helping these employees when they come into the organization continue to rise up the ranks. Um, so I, I think that's really what this is meant, meant to do. Uh, but I can understand the, the concern. And I think none of us are ever advocating for you know, ha having any kind of illegal policy or penalizing someone else through this process. At the same time, you do have to create opportunity. Sure. I, I don't believe it's ever it's ever a malicious intent, but I do think that people can and have run afoul of laws that may on the surface seem like they're sort of in the way of progress, but in reality, they're helping us maintain it. I mean, think of free speech as a perfect example to that. Yeah. Somebody on the corner yelling obscenities at people or calling people names Nobody would say that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. 
But that guy's freedom to be an idiot is actually what gives us all of our freedom to be yeah. thoughtful, right? So, so, so I think that people can often maybe run afoul of things, even if they if it seems counterintuitive. One one quick thing for the record, um, I just looked this up. Microsoft this year has one hundred and fifty six thousand employees. Mm-hmm. Globally, so we're talking now. I don't know if the four percent is global or if it's just a that's US. Just a, uh, that was according to U.S. workers. So U.S. That's workers. Just the okay, US, so the US uh, so I don't know what the function is, but let, you know, let's just again from you know stating the obvious. I think um, it's it's a very low number, and I think it's something that um, you should have the the aspirations to double, you know, triple maybe even right as a percentage of the population. Sure, it's a you you could triple the number that you have. And still under-index the population, just as an FYI. Right. So, I mean, so um, my yeah. one side question to this to Satya would be: Why? Where did two come from? Where did the double come from? Right. The, I, I'm curious about that. Was it just like PR speak? Like we want to double? You know, we really want right. to grow 100. percent You know, or is there an actual strategy? Because that's what this letter. And I went back to the source. I looked at the letter from the Department of Labor, and what it's asking for is. Exactly explain to us the mechanisms by which you will go from 4% to 8%. We want to understand that in this period of time. Yeah. And by the way, in this case, we're actually we're talking about the 3%, which is the, Sorry, the, 3%. the leadership roles, right? The so executive director. So it's four times then. If they 4 x it, it would still under-index. It was still under-index. Correct. So that's – and you're right. And the letter does get into – tell us exactly how you're going to do this without – Racially discriminating other like other groups or using race as a sole basis to make those, those decisions, right? So, I understand that point. I think my concern, my issue with the Department of Labor at this moment, of bringing this up, is that I love how proactive they're being in responding to a bold statement of a seal making try to address diversity gaps. What I haven't read, and maybe it's out there, but I, I don't recall seeing the letters being sent to all industry by the U.S. Department of Labor saying, why is your employee base so so single-raced to, to a large degree? Why isn't it better represented of other groups? What are you doing that you're not doing a good enough job of actually creating more opportunities for folks? Mm-hmm. And to what degree is racial discrimination being used as a trigger to not hire the people? Right. I, I, I mean, I don't recall, and maybe there has been, a letter has been sent out saying, hey, why is your workforce workforce 90x percent uh, Anglo in the in the leadership roles? I think and it, what are you doing to yeah. tell me like you're exactly what you're doing to address that? The kind of sad thing right now as I look around is that we're living in a moment where the absence of something doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist. Um, and so I I'm not I don't know that the Department of Labor's regular newsletters make the news. I just yeah, don't. I, right. I, I just don't think and that could do. be the case. I, I'm reading the letter right now, and I can. And what I read in it, it says, although contractors, and just replace the word contractors with Microsoft. So I'll I'll do that edit just to make it easier for anybody listening. Although Microsoft must establish affirmative action programs to set workforce utilization goals for minorities and women based on availability, Microsoft must not engage in discriminatory practices in meeting these goals. So there, the letter from the Department of Labor says you have to have, as a vendor to the federal government, established affirmative action programs, but you can't violate the law in meeting those affirmative action programs. So whether or not they send out letters that say, why do you, why have you not done that? I don't know. I mean, I'm not plugged into that circle, but I can promise you that it's not fun to talk about. It doesn't make a great headline. Nobody's yelling at each other about that stuff. I think they're yelling at each other about this. Yeah, but although I do think with this administration, that would be a headline that would get picked up if the labor, if the Department of Labor, rather than t- what looks like a punitive approach, 
at trying to address diversity gaps was sort of took the opposite stance of saying, hey, by the way, what are you doing to be more proactive uh, to actually decrease this diversity gap? Like that in these- You in think these, it would get a headline? O- over the last you know few months, especially during, you know, with everything that happened with George Floyd and, and all the protests, I think that as a headline coming from the Department of Labor would have been something that absolutely would get picked up by everybody. You say, well, that's really interesting. These guys are coming out- proactively saying, what are, you, what are you doing? What do you need help with? How do we help support that? Because we obviously have a gap in in, in what's happening in our work, for, especially in those higher roles, executive roles, et cetera, et cetera. We know that some of the stats, especially when you think about Silicon Valley and, and mm-hmm. more, a lot of the tech companies, they're, they're not very diverse at all, right? So it, it is interesting in this case is you're having a tech company in an industry that struggles significantly with diversity, trying to make a bold move to try to, in bold in this case, you're right. It's really not that bold because if you think about the, how low the percentage is, right. it shouldn't take that much. But but then again, but even then, now you have to go out and justify. And once again, not advocating for breaking the law, not advocating for using race as the only basis of, of putting people in roles. As a matter of fact, one thing that you and I have constantly talked about is that the thing that we are very aware of whenever it comes to any kind of these announcements, policies, et cetera, is that, you have to make sure that you put people in a position to succeed because it's really important, especially when you bring in the first Absolutely. type of diverse people into roles of leadership, that if you do not groom them well, if you do not train, if you do not hire them well, then they're going to fail them. and they represent that entire demographic, which is yeah. which is sort of the sad thing about it. We tried and we try to put, look, we try to put a Latino guy in the leadership role and, and they fail, so therefore we shouldn't hire any more of these guys. I'd like to I'd like to agree with what you said, um, but I find myself increasingly more cynical about the idea that a positive headline um, would make would make news. And as an example, we're not you know we don't have it lined up to talk about in this episode. But one of the things that I came across was the Trump administration's recent release of the Platinum Plan for African Americans in the U.S. That's what they call it, the Platinum Plan. And it's you know the name. No, I know, so much like, response just on the name alone. It's like a new credit card or something. Um, <laughs> you win a trip to Aruba if you sign up before uh, yeah. October thirty first. But nevertheless, again, you can we can pick a, we can pick the policy apart. Um, obviously, and people should they should right. not agree with it if they don't. But the fact of it is, is it was a proactive. It was a plan. It was specifically designed for African Americans. It did have programs and benefits and opportunities and things that I didn't hear a darn thing about. Didn't I mean I saw like two people write about it and one of them was local. It wasn't even like a national news thing. So I think that that's the the tricky part is that I want to believe that things would be looked at at their merit, but I just don't know if we're at that at that moment right now, maybe after the election, but right now in particular, I just think that it's a real I don't know. I find myself more cynical than than is natural for me. I'm not a cynical person. I find myself more cynical yeah. about that idea that, hey, if it was good, we'd hear about it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think even with that plan and plan that Trump uh, uh, put out, I think part of the challenge with those kind of announcements is that, and, it's, and look, it happens right now, and it's, it's not a Republican-only issue. I think across the political sector is that at least my interpretation when I see things like that is these messages tend to come out and they're very focused to a very specific group in a very specific setting. But unless it's part of the actual national platform for that candidate, I just have a hard time believing how important it really is and how much they really care about this other than trying to win a couple of votes here and there, mm-hmm. right? The fact that, that that's never come up in any, it didn't come out in the debate. We've never really heard President Trump talk about it outside of this one. And you're right. Part of it is that it didn't get enough coverage, but 
President Trump does not have a problem getting his message covered. He uses Twitter all the time, every day, multiple times a day to get what's important to him comes out. Law and order is a very important staple of, of President Trump's platform. You don't have to worry about him covering or not covering to you to know that law and order is a very important because he talks about it all the time. So, I, yeah, I agree with you. Should it get more coverage? Probably. I, I, yeah, it should. Am I skeptical about it? Of course I am. Having said that, I think that if it was a really bigger priority for him, it would have A, come out earlier, and then B, he would make it a much bigger part of what he actually talks about. And the reality, he doesn't really talk about it. And it's also tough to trust his stance on this when he does have so much controversy around some of the decisions that he's made, one way or another, as it relates to race, right? And some of which he's trying to walk back and try to course correct. But it's just, it's a constant theme that has, you know, been over his head. And I think he hasn't done enough to clearly separate himself from everything from controversial groups that are out there from in, you know, the Twitter is both his friend and foe of tweeting things where people are saying white power on it and he just didn't, maybe didn't realize it if you give him full benefit of the doubt. But you do enough of those all the time and all of a sudden it just, I think it's hard to create that separation entirely from that mm-hmm. and then give a lot of credence to this message coming out literally at the nth hour, said it in one event, not really talked about as part of your platform. And I think to me, part that's part of the reason why he's not getting enough enough coverage. I I, I agree with you in the sense that um, perhaps it hasn't been talked to talked at at the level of the things that you know national security, the wall, um, law and order, especially now in the summer. You're 100 percent right. I don't. I do think that it's it's for me. The question is not what he says about it because he you know does tweet about, uh, in this case, the African-Americans, especially when the, before coronavirus, when the unemployment rate and all that stuff was a really great story for African-American right. and for Latino. Yeah, like I remember the best he, story he's the one that the most for African-Americans, maybe exactly. with the exception with, Maybe of with the exception of Lincoln. Maybe. He, kind of, he, 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 he gets in there potentially, just a, just a little bit more, but <laughs> it's a it's a push. It's a toss-up. We'll <laughs> it's see. A toss up. But nevertheless, I definitely have, you know, seen and heard on the platform, but I think yeah. the part that's, 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 um, where my cynicism enters in the degree to which those are covered, right? So it's not that yeah. he doesn't have a way to get it out. He does, and he does. But right. it's the degree to which, like, oh, here's what here's what this great plan potentially for African Americans or or look at the big blow up with Goya earlier in the year, right? right? The platinum plan. It, it was that was the copper plan, well, I think. Five I easy payments of nine ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine. But but in in the context of the Goya thing even, right? The Goya thing, like it, hate it, like the guy, hate the guy, all of that was in the context of him having a summit at the White House for Latino prosperity. Yeah. That was that was where that happened. I don't remember hearing much about that. It was about here's it another was, example. It was completely overtaken right? by so, the, yeah, so by that's the, the part that the... I'm kind of commenting on. Um, although I don't disagree with you that he has the platform and way, absolutely the, has the used it. The one thing I would say that he mm-hmm. does not get credit for. I know we've literally gone sidetracked now, but the one thing I will I would 100% agree with you that he does not get enough enough credit is for uh, to some of the work that he's done around criminal reform. Oh, 100%. Um, and, and uh, well, not just criminal, I'm sorry, to um, um, like incarceration. Social ju- like just, uh, yeah, yeah, criminal justice. Criminal reform. justice, yeah. yeah. And, and, and false, people that, are, that were, you know, incarcerated falsely and, and releasing them. And that he definitely has done. And it's an interesting dynamic because of obviously the involvement of of, of the Kardashians, or Kim Kardashian specifically, mm-hmm. not, not, not the whole family. But that is something that, you know, the guy has done and has been consistent with. And because he, he is also mentioned as part of the platinum. If you get the gold, you don't get that part. But if, with the plan, it does come with it. 
Uh, I just want to know which one gives me more miles on yeah, American. Exactly, right? Uh, but but no, I, I, I agree that he definitely doesn't get enough, enough credit for it. All right, so that's computer chips. Um, I think at the end of the day, for me, I go back to the idea, just as a final note on on Microsoft, that you know, it's it's hard to fall off the floor. So the numbers of relative to the population are significantly lower than perhaps they should be. All of these efforts take work. I'd love to see the fullness of the Microsoft plan myself to understand, are they actually going to be going into different communities, try to develop relationships with people, or are they just going to be hawkish on the interviews once they get to Microsoft? Because I feel like to the point you made earlier, yeah. there's a problem at the beginning, i.e. we're not creating a it's not mentorship because they're not here yet, but we're not creating a real relationship. The pipeline for it, yeah. And then afterwards, there's a problem afterwards. There's no mentorship, right? We're so focused on the moment of entry, right? Mm-hmm. What I'd like to see is that plan so I can better understand how are we creating the relationship so, so that it's not just a quick fix and then it falls away, and then how are we mentoring people after the fact? That's a thing where, I, where, I'm, where if I could be appreciative of the Department of Labor's inquiry, it's at least we'll be able to find out what they actually have planned in that And that, that is the long-term play, right? If, if, and I know we're going to switch to sports right now, but if you were to make the, the sort of the, the reference to baseball, right, and you said, hey, we want to really increase the representation of African-American baseball players because it's been a major drop-off, right? One way to do it is only sign whatever African-American players are out there, only sign those guys and, and bring them in. That's one way, and that's the wrong way to do it. The other way is saying, hey, if we, if we look at farm teams, if you look at all the way down to the programs that are in the neighborhoods, especially in some of those at-risk communities, and more investing there to increase the pipeline at that level, then work them all the way up, the net effect is going to be having more African-American baseball players. It's a much longer play, but it is a, a much better commitment of addressing some of those gaps that, that, are, that are currently there rather than just simply only giving contracts to African-American players, which I think will be the one that we would all probably agree that it's the wrong way to, to approach it. 100%. Okay, so let's transition then. Let's talk about the next kind of chips, ice chips. Um, I guess they don't really chip the ice. Maybe sometimes they do, but we're talking about the NHL here in this case uh, in the news recently, and then maybe we can dovetail a little bit into NASCAR. But um, what's going on at the NHL? Yeah, with the NHL, it, it, I mean, they're sort of a, a tale of two stories right now. Um, on the one hand, uh, historic you know, accomplishment that just happened recently uh, with Quentin um, Byfield, 18-year-old, became the highest drafted black player uh, as he was selected second overall by the Los Angeles Kings. And, and previously, the highest drafted black players had been Evander Kane in 2009 and Seth Jones in 2013, both that were taken fourth overall, right? So it's a big deal, the fact that you're getting this, you know, this kid, uh, out of Ontario, uh, he was actually part of the Canadians' goal-winning uh, team in the World Junior Hockey Championship. Uh, coming in, drafted as once again overall number two or second overall. Uh, so that's a big deal. I think it's a big accomplishment. I think it speaks to the level of 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 talent that is coming into the NHL. I think NHL in general, and I don't I don't have the numbers here handy with me, but it's five percent. It's five percent, right? That's what yeah. I thought it was. Yeah, it's about five percent of players that are actively playing in the NHL are are black. And I think it's been like that for a little for a little while. But if you really get someone like this kid, and if you know being selected second, you know if he becomes a major star, that could be a game changer for the for the game, right? And for how other younger uh, kids, black kids specifically, see themselves reflected in the game, and could potentially have a very positive impact in getting more kids interested and want to play hockey. 
especially if they see someone be very successful at that level. So I think that's a great story. It's a great story of of how the sport is evolving and even getting bigger players because that's the reality, right? The it's, it really it comes down to the big names that draw the attention and and this kid at least as a as a starting point to his career, it's it's a really positive story, right? So that's the positive. On the other hand, literally the day after this landmark <laughs> selection, right? 24 of, hours of, of later. Field, 24 hours later, the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which was a group that was composed of nine current and former NHL players of color, which was basically created to make the sport more socioeconomically inclusive and fight racism both within hockey and society, uh, basically said that it was going to work independently of the league. So it was sort of officially ending their relationship with the league. Uh, that organization was spotlighted in the Stanley Cup playoffs during the moments that acknowledge protests against racial injustice and police brutality, right? Um, they were, in in some ways, I think probably in many ways, a direct response by the NHL to the social movement, to yeah. everything with George Floyd. And while every league sort of, and we've talked about some of the other leagues, like, you know, what was going on in the NBA, and which just concluded, and um, the NFL as well. This was sort of the NHL's response to it, right? But... Uh, it sounds like while there was a lot of good intent and interest in wanting to work together, uh, ultimately, I think there's been some frustration. As a matter of fact, as, as I quote here, um, it said here, we have waited many months for a response to the common sense HDA pledge we proposed. So this is coming from the Hockey Diversity Alliance, right? Uh, and it's clear that the NHL is not prepared to make any measurable commitments to end systematic racism in hockey. While we are disappointed, the HDA will operate separate and independent of the NHL, and authentically implement necessary education programs and changes to the sport and seek to be role models for the youth in um, for black, indigenous, and people of color communities who want to play hockey. So that was a statement that came from the Hockey Diversity Alliance. So it is, on the one hand, great moment of celebration for NHL with uh, this young kid, obviously, you know, being selected at the highest that they ever had, uh, just being drafted as a black player. And then at the same time, this sort of falling apart of a relationship between this group of all previous, current and previous hockey players of color saying that NHL is just not really doing enough to actually address some of the diversity gaps that are there. So it, I think it's um, obviously tough time for the NHL, but, but uh, you know, I guess what is your response to both of those things, right? Because on the one mm-hmm. hand, it depends on how you want to look at it. Great moment, signs of a lot of real positive things, you know, happen at the same time as some challenges that the NHL is really facing. By the way, in a league that has faced years of issues with racism on the like on the on the on the ice. On the ice specifically, there's like a whole sort of set of stuff that has happened over the years. Um, has issues with diversity in terms of the players, right? Being at that sort of state at that five percent, obviously not great representation. Yeah. Um, and this in many ways felt like a real opportunity to do something different, but at least from the perspective of the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which I think means something if you're talking about both current and former players that are yeah. that are that are you know people of color or players of color, it is disappointing to see this at this at the same time of this historic moment. It's such an interesting game to hockey. I mean, I, and and I know it's um, the, the people at NHL, which by the way we know very high ranking people at the NHL, right? Um, I'm sure they cringe when people say this kind of stuff, but the idea that in the middle of the play. Right, somebody can just start a fist fight. Is to me a, a, a part main, of the game. By the way, it's yeah, part yeah, of the game. Yeah. Like if there's not a, it's like NASCAR. When yes, of course we want to see who wins, but those near misses and Pete and the cars bumping into each other—that's part of the the drama, right? 
And part of the drama with with uh, with hockey is these kind of moments of just fisticuffs and people say dumb stuff when they're fighting, you know. So I, 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 it doesn't surprise me at all that there's been a ton of incidents of of that kind of thing. Now, you know how I feel about this thing across the board. I really feel that we're missing some part of the story here. Sure. And with a part of the story that we're missing is the NHL side of the story because they've been pretty quiet about this. I find it. And I love the um, the uh, Quentin Byfield story, and I love all the fact that, you know, and, and apparently there's other players. We're not, at least I'm not a huge NHL fan, so I don't know all the ins and outs of the sport, but a lot of these few players of color have really taken to heart the idea of being ambassadors for the league, for their communities, and they have podcasts and events and all kinds of stuff. So I think all that is really, really good. And the fact that they're associated with this organization to try to drive more um, accessibility to the sport, also great. Nothing, no issue there. My problem with what I read, at least, is that it seems like we're missing one side of the story. Yeah. And it's the NHL side of the story insofar as it says that it, what you just read, we've been waiting for months. I get this image of somebody sitting out in the rain, you know, like waiting, you know, kind of like, and the big bad people haven't even come out of their building. I so highly doubt that that's the case because I know ex how exceedingly sensitive a lot of these leagues are to their perception. And if somebody was saying to them, we've got this pledge that we want you to sign, and they just simply weren't responding to it, which is what that sounds like. Yeah, it's what that sounds like, but and it's not the case to be clear, right? So, just to give you a little bit more more color, there is in September, the NHL announced a series of initiatives, right, to combat racism and, and increase inclusion in the sport. Now, one of them, which was interesting, was a first of its kind grassroots hockey development program that was meant to provide mentorship and skill development for. Uh, you know, kids of color, boys and girls in the greater Toronto area, right? Which is, by the way, the only initiative that formally partnered with the Hockey Diversity Alliance. So, so they had one thing that they shared in common. They had one that. thing they shared in mm -hmm. common. While there was a number of, and I don't, I don't have a hit here in terms of what was some of the other initiatives that they that the NHL had had proposed. Now, part of it could be not not doing, basically taking action, but it also could be. How much action can you take? How quickly can well, you I take think, it? I think How that's much what it is. Absorb this in the mat in the at the same time that you're literally going through this pandemic, trying to get through playoffs through a condensed season. And there's are you all and, and, these different elements that are in there? Right? And somewhere, whether it's the NHLs or this organization, there's there's a, a series of expectations that have e has either not been properly communicated, or or something because it's clear that the expectation is different than what the outcome you know actually is. And I look at again the statement that you read, and I start asking myself you know some questions, which is you know if you look at what they've actually proposed, and I went and there's some. Um, info that you could get on the website for the Hockey Diversity Alliance's pledge. Not a lot of detail, though, at least not on their site. But they basically ask for four things as part of this pledge. Create a policy and rule changes that make the culture of the game more inclusive. That's one request. Yeah. Uh, establish specific targets for hiring, promoting, and partnering with black individuals and businesses. Okay. Uh, execute educational programs to increase awareness of racism in hockey. And number four, fund impactful social justice initiatives. All four of those things on the surface, I think you may find a less than one-tenth of one percent disagreement from anybody that you'd share those at that level. Now, how do they actually get executed? Let's take the first one. Create a policy and rule changes that make the culture of the game more inclusive. 
okay, what if the rule changes that are being proposed by this alliance, I'm not saying they are, but what if they change fundamentally what the hockey game actually is today? That's something that maybe takes more than two months to determine whether or not you want to do it, right? If you're really going to change the rules of the game, as an example, and again, I'm not saying that it is, I don't know what what their recommendations are, but they're advocating for rule changes that make the culture of the game more inclusive. Okay, well, who determines that? And what does that actually mean? And so to your point, maybe it's just a lot that's trying to get processed through right. in a short period of yeah, time. Yeah, if you give me the benefit of the doubt, you could definitely say the NHL is, has a lot to process because in my mind, one of the, the biggest challenges that NHL has as it relates to addressing some of these racial divides is actually with its fan base, right? The ugliest moments that the NHL has lived over the last few years and maybe more than the last few, last maybe 10 years plus, has been in cases where they're responding to something that their fans have done. The worst of it is when they're, and I don't recall what year it was, but they actually like threw banana peel against, you know, t- towards one of the one of the African American players that was playing. You just and that's uh, you just can't have that, right? Now, could you put policy in place that penalizes not just that fan that basically did that, but that puts real penalties even to the teams, right? That allow that, allow that environment. Like that's the way you really because as much as a, of a fan, you could be a jerk, but. You probably don't want to be the fan that is known for getting your team disqualified or costing a game. And, and so you're able to curb that behavior uh, in many ways through the game, right, when people are there. And I think maybe in reading that or hearing you read that, that's what sort of comes to mind for me as, as I think of ways that could be addressed. And it could be a case that the NHL is just not ready for that because they're dealing with a bunch of other stuff right now, once again, with the pandemic well, and yeah. playoffs and so or even if, even if they are ready for it, maybe what they suggested, recommended, or proposed isn't to their, to this alliance's liking. Sure. And I think you could do it with every one of these. I mean, look at established specific targets for hiring and promoting and partnering with black individuals. We just talked about it in the case of Microsoft. Um, if those targets, you know, uh, th- those targets can be done in a way that maybe violates the rights of other people. As an example, we, we haven't talked about this specifically, but if you look at the NFL and the NBA – uh, they are obviously disproportionately African-American um, athlete-driven. I'd love to see more Latino football players. I'd love to see more Latino basketball players. Mm-hmm. But if it, but if the move is, hey, we're only going to hire Latinos until we've kind of ironed out the scales, I wouldn't be in favor of that because I think that you got to also focus on the athlete and the athleticism and whether or not they have the statistics. And it, it's not just this kind of cut and dry thing. Again, I'm not saying that that's what these people are proposing, but you can take that and execute it in a variety of ways. Right. And maybe what they proposed, the NHL maybe can't do or doesn't. I, yeah. I'm just saying that's my big theme is we're missing some part of this for me to be able to form a really thoughtful opinion on it. Right. I mean, I think the it just doesn't look good for the NHL. That's just a reality of it. You know, when you have this kind of diversity alliance, once again, you have already very small representation as it relates to players of color, and they get together and they provo- propose some you know different ways, some changes that at least on the surface when we when we hear what they are, they all sound reasonable and good sort of things to strive for. Yeah, the mechanics of how you get to it, of course, it becomes sort of the complicated thing. But for that to fall apart, I mean, this thing was just established what in June was when they launched this alliance. That's not very long ago, right? So it already fell apart. That's the part that is a little bit. And think about a hockey. Scary, disappointing, and be like, right. what What happened, right? If, so for, if you're the NHL right now, you're PR, you're like, oh my. Bad optics. Very bad optics. I think it doesn't speak well to what they're doing, regardless of whose fault it is. Sure. The, the, the end result of it is bad. Having said that, the thing that is interesting, when you think about what could have a very long-lasting effect, longer term, I think having this kid get drafted second, 
by the Kings, I think that's a really big deal. It is. Right? And, if, and especially if this guy becomes a superstar. I think that could be really impactful because even in the past, well, you've always had African-American players. And once again, we're not major hockey fans, but I don't know if there's been like a real, real superstar uh, who's African-American playing. And I think that would make us a really big difference in getting especially kids to care more about the game. There's no question. I mean, so it's awful optics. I mean, think about the ludicrousness of the, quote, Hockey Diversity Alliance not having a relationship with the National Hockey League. I mean, right. that's— it, it it kind of uh, you know goes into the a realm of absurdity, which which is you know I'm sure part of the intention that these guys had in issuing this statement is that people get that right, they understand that cognitive and that dissonance was both created and then separated from the NHL in less than five months. In less than five months, and it's all people that played in the NHL, right? Who all lived this experience. Exactly. So it's super super bad optics. Um, I do think that they are probably there's more conversations behind the scenes than this, you know, suggests. And I think that at the end of the day, it's about having, you know, a dialogue and it, oftentimes it's about nuanced things about the mechanics and how you implement these things, but you have to be able to have conversations. And where I do fault the NHL based on what I know, which is not everything, is that for it to have come to the point where these people could have said, the alliance could have said, we're out. Like for it to get to that point of, right. of like you should be able to, you should be able to see that coming, and try to head that off at the pass, right? Yeah, and that's the part where where there's you know some some thinking that no matter what was actually said or what your position is, that's a mistake to my mind. Yeah, I think it also speaks to a the the obviously the challenges that every league is having as it relates to how to respond to this moment. Also, the really interesting power dynamic that is res- being literally reshaped now between players, teams. Uh, owners and leagues, right? You've seen it in the in, of course, in the NBA, which is probably the most player friendly league I think out there. Um, WNBA, of course, but you've seen the shift as well in the NFL, right? The NFL that you know you could we can of course we've kind of picked apart already some of their response at the moment, but even with their somewhat um, limited response or or how you want to sort of characterize their response to the moment. There still has been, even within that, a shift more towards the players in the NFL as well. And I think here you're seeing that sort of start to come to fruition. And I think this is where that rub probably starts to happen, is to what degree the league controls it, how much is getting dictated by players. Um, and in this case, it's almost, uh, you know, it feels a little bit of the opposite response as NASCAR, to be per- perfectly honest with you, which is if you're to pick you know, two sports, those are probably the ones that really have struggled with some of the diversity issues. But NASCAR's response to, which is probably a good segue to uh, to switch, uh, to Bubba Wallace, right, who very publicly asked, like, listen, we I know this has been part of the tradition of NASCAR having the Confederate flag, but if there's ever been a moment that this needs to stop, like, this is, has to be that moment, and 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 something that, to NASCAR's credit, they did. They, and it was it was not a popular move, at least not with their core fan base, especially with the core fan base that was going to venues, right? Um, but yet they I felt it felt like at least they responded in a very strong manner in supporting that, um, which I think you know. Once again, you can't sort of say about everything else that they've done, 
But at least on that on that piece, it feels like the the right kind of way to to react to it. Yeah, I agree with you. And that actually is a good segue because we kind of get into our courageous or cringeworthy segment of the show. And we're actually going to kick it off with NASCAR. I agree with you on the moves that they made earlier with respect to Bubba Wallace and and, and the controversy around. Uh, that and um, you know applaud them for their openness to change things. Even though I'd probably put that more as a fan tradition than maybe a league one, but nevertheless, it was part right. of the NASCAR experience. Now there's this um, diversity awards that now they've introduced this a while ago, but it's um, yeah. obviously become more newsworthy now because the whole conversation around diversity that the entire country is having. But what's going on with these diversity awards? Yeah, so Na- NASCAR just very recently held its 13th annual NASCAR Drive for Diversity Awards, which is a celebration of the sports diversity and inclusion trailblazers, right? Uh, in this case, of course, because of COVID and everything, they had a, a special virtual ceremony to honor all the industry members, you know, whose efforts are making a difference both on and off the racetrack. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically what it is. And it's, it, it is, it was interesting knowing that it's been going on for this long. I think as part of the, honestly, when I, when I saw that, I had the same response that, um, that you were saying earlier, which is like, sometimes these sort of positive things kind of get lost in the shuffle because this is something that, you know, they didn't just start doing, they have been doing. Um, and it kind of hit our radar because of obviously sort of sensitivity around what's everything happened in the moment currently and with, with sport, but it is at least good to see some of the work. And I'm sure NASCAR has maybe done a lot of things that they don't get no credit for that they've been doing. Um, and this is an example of one, uh, at least in, in recognizing the people that are trying to make a difference. I think once you double click into well, who the people are being recognized and some of the, some <laughs> and of the categories, it becomes a little bit squishy. Being recognized, yeah. I would put this, look, and again, with NASCAR, we know a lot of people at NASCAR, very good people, really smart. So, you know, it's nothing against that. But I would put this one into the more more cringe than courage category for sure. What what, what was more, most cringy to you? I mean, look, I think that the idea of having, you know, a diversity, a driving diversity award where you've got 10 winners and three of them are white guys. Um, and by the way, that's not to say that they're not doing good things. They are. They've some of them established funds. All of one of them is a you know a team owner that done a lot of great things for the community. And you know me, I'm not. My starting point is less about how people, the immutable characteristics of people, uh, and things that they cannot change, like their race, and more about what they choose to do in life. So I don't even like using that kind of sort of measuring stick. But it is ironic. And and it shows that if it's true that there are not 10 people that we can find in one year to give this award to that fall into these categories themselves, it's just it just begs the question. Like, I mean, what how what have you been doing? How how's this thing been growing over the last 13 years? Is this the only thing that's being done? Is another question that comes to mind for me. Is it an award show? Is it kind of a PR move? Which again falls into the category of that's fine, that's great. I mean, it's not bad, it's fine, but but what exactly um, what exactly does this say about the sport and the efforts that they're making to drive this um, you know change in fandom and, and audience? If that's what these ten finalists uh, look like, you know, I thought about to myself, and this is not the right idea, but the people in NASCAR would probably roll over in their grave. But like, imagine take or roll over rather, and they're not dead. But would you know? Imagine taking a NASCAR, like an actual car, and you know, going to do some kind of cool remote activation thing in Boyle Heights or in South LA or wherever it is, and say like, "Hey, this is a professional race car. Let's check it out. Let's talk about the way it's engineered. Like, touch it, be in it, drive it." Maybe they do some of that. I haven't seen or heard 
a lot of that. And I think that goes so much further where you actually try to connect with these communities rather than here's some people who are already in our orbit. They're already here and we're going to recognize them because they happen to fall into one of these groups. So that's that's why at least a starting point of why I put it more in cringe than courage. Yeah, no, I think the 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 actual awards themselves probably more a little more cringe than than not. Look to your point, even when you look at who they recognize, I think part of it is literally a reflection of what the sport currently is. You know, they just they're just not very diverse. I mean, when you're and and not to nitpick here, but when you're one of your ten awards is about outstanding intern award. That's not, it's not a knock about them having We love them. interns. We love interns. Interns are awesome. That's great, right? And this is part of a program that they have, which is the 2019 NASCAR Diversity Internship Program, which is, once again, awesome. But if this is the way from, like, your, your entire league of all the work that's being done across the, the board around diversifying the sport, if one of the 10 slots has to go to your intern program, then you're probably not doing enough things yet, right? I, 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 do, like the, I do like the the... The spirit of it, what they're trying to do, I think that's great. Um, I think it's a, it is a reflection of the fact that you just you're just not very diverse, which is why when I when I saw that you know the diversity awards, I, I do put it more in the sort of check the box, nice kind of thing, not really making any kind of real impact. I think what does make an impact. This is what I was actually very excited to see is that what was announced in um, last month in September, right, with Michael Jordan and Danny Hamlin launching a new NASCAR team with Bubba Wallace as a driver. Now that to me is like game changer. Yeah, right? ground because up. It, it, well, yeah, I guess you could say ground up, but to somebody says like top down because one of the biggest issues in my mind when it comes to sport, I guess it's both, is is that is it comes down to the power in in the sports leagues really is concentrated at the ownership level, right? It it is, and that's part of the problem with some of these leagues, the NFL, like you know, a number number of them is that you don't have enough diversity in the ownership level. Which then seeps down into every kind of role that you can be able to uh, to in- to include, all the way down to players, right? So for Michael Jordan to come in and say, "Hey, we're going to draw launch a a new team here," and I love the fact that they they're partnering with Bubba Wallace as a, as a driver who basically, and I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say he's maybe the only African American driver right now in the NASCAR series. Well, there is an African American woman, uh, Tia Norfleet, um, who is I don't know if she's currently racing, but she made. Waves in at the end of 2018, uh, being the first African American woman NASCAR driver. So, oh, she, interesting. So okay. he wouldn't be the only African American. Oh, but, okay. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great. So, yeah, to me, like that is makes a, a big difference. I think having representation at the ownership level that can help shape how the the, the NASCAR really handles themselves, what kind of policies they put in place, how to be able to continue to expand this sport, make it more more accessible and more interesting for a lot of more diverse people. Because the reality is. We looked at the data, right? We looked at some data from 2011. It was a report, it was a report by, by Scarborough Research. And as it relates to diverse fan base, the, 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 uh, the NASCAR had about 20% of the total fan base be diverse, which when you compare it to population, at 40% means like less than 50% index, right? So highly, highly under-indexed on diversity. And to them, it has to be a big opportunity. We, we think about all the stats sure. of where the country's going, everything moving forward, younger people, more diverse, Something that they have to solve for. So I, I, you know, I appreciate their efforts around the diversity awards. I think it's good to recognize that work. Sure. When you look at the list of people being being recognized, some of the work there, you can see they're having to. 
they're having to find ways to fill the 10 people. Like if it was 50 people, I don't, know, I don't think they could find that they could really fill in the entire list. You know? And that's, and that's the real underlying. That's the challenge, right? Yeah, it's the challenge they have. That's, that's why it makes it a little bit cringy to your point. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure that this, and again, we know some folks at NASCAR and I think that in, in a lot of cases, their very good work goes in some cases unnoticed. So it's not to say that there haven't been efforts in this area, but you do wonder about the kind of, um, structural stuff that, that could evolve or change, which is what the Jordan announcement is so, meaningful for, right? It's like the money, the racing team, the pit crew, the engineers, right. all that stuff have an, have an opportunity to, you know, come along and evolve on the basis of this big of this big change. And I think more things like that and other people seeing that Jordan's involved with it, right? And highlighting the stories of people who are um, you know, part of NASCAR can help attract more people. But at the end of the day, we come back to the same thing for me, which is you you kind of you have to go into the communities, right? You have to actually mm-hmm literally show up and not just try to um, feature and lift um, the people and voices once they're within your orbit. I think that's necessary, but it, but it can't be the only thing um, because obviously you won't get there if that's, if that's the only thing that you're doing. Yeah. So, sure. um, okay, cool. So that's NASCAR. And now we uh, continue with our cringe or courage uh, section here with uh, our friends at Yelp. Now, not, not too much of a clever segue there. I guess we can our, our intent was to go from uh, into potato chips. I guess NASCAR and Yelp could somehow relate to potato chips in, in, Probably, in one way, shape, or form. But, um, but anyway, Yelp was in the news very recently with a pretty significant change uh, to the actual app experience, the user experience of the application. And you know, it raised some, uh, some eyebrows of praise and maybe a couple or one or two of concern. Yeah, so Yelp recently launched, um, announced the launch of alerts to flag businesses that have been accused of racist behavior, right? Um, now, the way that this will work, because I think it's interesting to understand the dynamics of, of, of why it was being done and, and how it works, is that this new red icon alert on Yelp will appear on businesses' pages that may have been impacted by situations where someone associated with a business used racist language or a racist symbol. Um, and, the ter- and the platform will temporarily disable users' ability to post content on pages that are under investigation until attention dies down. Um, now, what's interesting here is that what the trigger is, right? So the trigger is when they see a high volume of comments claiming that a business was being racist, and that will basically prompt the, the, the flag. And it's interesting because it actually is meant to both protect users and also business owners, right? Now, part of where this also comes from is that there is history with Yelp of of basically in almost in social protest, businesses being either in many cases mostly penalized for supporting one candidate or another, and all of a sudden getting you know flagged down or or getting single star. So it's a way for Yelp to try to control that uh, at the same time as keeping business owners uh, you know honest if they are actually doing things that are that are racist, right? Um, so basically, businesses without a significant spike in reviews surrounding racism won't be flagged. Right. And in those cases, consumers and business owners can report content they believe violates Yelp's guidelines against hate speech. Right. So if a business thinks that they're being unfairly reviewed, they can basically flag it and it won't it won't sort of bring up this this uh, uh, alert. Uh, but it does mean that there could be cases where a business definitely gets flagged where something happened. And it could be in some cases, you know, the reality is when you talk about consumers and in businesses, it could be, you know, sometimes it could be just misunderstandings that could turn into something much, much bigger. Customer's always right, though. And all, and then you have, yeah, and then you have this this sort of scarlet letter that shows up oh, on your account. Yeah. And the part of the question is, how do you recover from that, right? 
right? Once you get flagged, because you will hate, you know, you you will love that people are thorough and and look at to your point, go to the sources. But once you get flagged and it's in review because of this, um, I think it becomes really challenging to recover from that at least for a while. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah, none of them are good. Let's hear it. <laughs> no. Um, so. Yeah, this is another one of those kind of reminds me of the glass door conversation we had either last episode or the episode before um, about the importance of definitions and the importance of who is saying what. There's a there's a couple things that concern me about this. Um, the f- first and foremost is, at least as I understand it, and I may be wrong, that a complaint about a business being racist triggers this flag. The flag says, hey, we're reviewing this, but it triggers it. It's a volume of complaints. It's not a single complaint. Well, the volume of complaints, but I'm saying it it doesn't wait for an inquiry or it doesn't take a week or a month or it's, we got these complaints and we flag the, the account, the restaurant owner in this case. And, and to me, part of my concern is the, the sort of lack of due process is the wrong word because it doesn't apply in this case. Nobody's at least Yelp isn't the body to have due process be a part of it, but there's no, it seems to me, a moment of inquiry before the public is made aware that this is happening. That's at least what I understand. So in other words, there's complaints, we flag, the flag says we're looking into this, right? and then they go, if we find it's not true, we'll downgrade it to, oh, just somebody racist worked here. The business isn't racist. Well, it, that, yeah, I mean, that's what it. That's what they said. What, what was it, what's interesting is is that well, let, let's let's take a step back with that before even this announcement. Okay, so before this this sort of alert, you already were had a situation, a case of Yelp that if someone goes into a business, they don't you know they don't get fast enough service. You know what? I just want, let me give you a perfect example. So I went to dinner last night, um, and I'm sitting there waiting to get served. And this waiter, for whatever reason, just was either just bad at his job, literally could just be bad at his job, didn't know what was going on. At least it looked like he was basically serving everyone except for our table. To the point that we finally just got up and just left. And I don't do that very often, but it was wow. like, this was not ridiculous, right? And and like How long did you wait? Um, probably uh, maybe 20 minutes, maybe less than that. In a, a restaurant that was maybe serving at the time, I would say no more than 10 tables. Right, so late at night, not a lot. By the way, very socially distanced outside. So just to be clear, in case anyone's listening there, uh, but you know, got up and left. Now, I didn't look at what the racial makeup was of any other tables. I didn't necessarily think of that right away. But cause one of my and the and the waiter was was Anglo, who was who was who was waiting on us, or or wasn't really waiting on us. I guess was part of the problem. But basically got up and left. So like, you know what? This is this is a really terrible service. I'm going to go ahead and leave. Now, at that moment, I could definitely, I have more than fair right to be able to provide a Yelp review. And part of my rationale as to why I think I wasn't served quickly enough or not at all from my perspective could be is like, hey, I think it was because of my race. Now, at that moment, you put that out in Yelp before this announcement, that's a fair review you can put in. Of course, it could be disputed by the owner if that's the case. But that's already out there in the public. There is no, at least I'm understanding, no review of that before it goes live. So you already have the problem in Yelp. But it, this takes it to a different degree, though, because you're actually talking about, in that case, if you were to say, I didn't get served, I ended up leaving, I think they discriminate against me because of my race, 
then what would happen in this case, again, after more than one complaint, but is the business itself would be flagged. It would get that that message that's like a red, yeah. I forget exactly what, what, what it looks like. What's not clear to me on based on how they describe this is how many complaints need to happen relative, is they just call it like a higher, higher normal volume of complaints associated with this. So yeah. I don't know what the trigger is, right? If a business typically gets one review, you know, a day, all of a sudden, that jumps up to five in a single day. Is that enough to trigger the complaint? Uh, the, the trigger the, the the icon? I I don't know that. And by the way, I don't I don't even see this idea of it has to be a number of them. It's it just it just basically calls it as higher uh, higher than the normal volume, right? So what that number actually is? That's a one. That's a great question. I don't I don't know what it is. Because what I read from the actual uh, from actually Yelp is that there needs to be resounding evidence of egregious racist actions from a business owner or employee, such as using overtly racist slurs or symbols. And then the the, sim, the, the, the alert, basically, I'm looking at it right now, that would be on the restaurant account, is a giant red circle with an exclamation mark on it. And it says, headline, in black, giant bold font, business accused of racist behavior. And then you read the sort of stuff on the bottom, and to me, I look at something like this, and look, my dad ran a small business like for years, a little convenience store in, in North Miami. This stuff, I, I see my dad getting hit with something like this. Not that he ever would have, obviously wasn't a racist, but I can imagine the devastation that comes to a business by getting branded in this way. And the other part that makes me really super concerned is that it's it can, it can uh, be because of an experience with an employee. Do you know how many times in my coming up, my dad hired people on like, there was somebody who was on drugs or somebody who actually stole from us, broke into the business late at night and took things. To think that you can be held accountable for what some like just jackass would say to somebody and then now your business is completely torpedoed because yeah. somebody did this. It, it, to me, it's so it, on the verge of this kind of Orwellian thing, especially knowing how much power something like Yelp has over, over small businesses. And that's the other thing, and much bigger than just Yelp. But these platforms are like gatekeepers into the entire industry at this point. They are, yeah, and, for sure they are. And and so for me, my first thought is good motivation. Definitely want to alert people, and we want to be helpful to them to help them make their decisions. But we already have so many of these mechanisms that people can leave their commentary, share their experiences, all this stuff. Now we're going to another to another higher level. And I also don't know if the counter one exists. Does it exist that I can get a great green one with a giant, you know, whatever it is right. that says you did a great job with respect to diversity, and this is a super diverse business with incredible diverse consumers and food and whatever. Or, or, so it just seems like it's on this side of the equation, and there's a lot of bad behavior that can result. And I just worry about, again, the employee business owner dynamic. It's like, man, just it, it'd be really hard for me to 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 go along with something like this yeah, from a small I mean, business perspective. Yeah, no, yeah, you, okay. You, you said a lot. I mean, I think part of it is uh, the the employee and business dynamic. I mean, it's I don't disagree with you, but it's the reality of running any kind of business. Right, and especially when that behavior of that employee is being done during business hours and with consumers, right? You could think of it: restaurants, you know, retailers. Doesn't matter, right? If if and it's really hard. You're right as an as an employer to be able to fully control that. But that's just the reality of running any kind of business. So I'm not sure there's that much that can be done there. Um, uh, t the challenging part that I see here is the mechanics of it, right? Like the questions that I have is okay. 
I understand why in some ways you're adding this flag to be able to pause additional activity in the account if there is an influx of commentary, right? Um, as they investigate what really happens. But how much of an investigation can you truly do here? And then more importantly, if it turns out that it's not true, that is not true that the business was actually had a, a racist, racist event, how do you really like fix that for that business? Because at that point, like you've already, it's already out there that once that trigger comes out, I think it's very, very hard well, for a business to be able to recover from that. They say what they're going to do. And that's the part where, where I read it, I was like, wow, that's seriously underwhelming. They said, if the business takes public corrective action, such as firing an offending employee, the alert, the giant red exclamation mark, will be downgraded to what's called, quote, a public attention alert, which still warns users that, quote, someone associated with the business was accused of or the target of racist behavior. I mean, yeah, it's like, damn. That is tough. That is tough. That is tough. I mean, I, yeah. I think this is one that is, like, once again, things with, with decent intent, and, and, you know, even this one, I think, has decent intent. But it makes it very, very hard for um, for a business to be able to recover from this. In a time where businesses are already so strained, especially in the restaurant business, that are already so dependent to your point about Yelp, right? If, if you're not on Yelp and you're not accessible there, it's like you're, you're not – you don't exist, right, for a, lot of, for a lot of these businesses. And depending on what kind of rating, you know, you have there, there's so much that goes into um, – you know, into into the management or the reputation management. Of what I meant, what I was trying to say, that uh, this only adds a whole other level. That you know, my in my mind is like you, this is like the kiss of death. Like the second you get this, I think it's going to be in this moment very hard for a business to survive. Now, for those to that to that point that are doing that, that are have that do have racist behavior, that that do have bad practice, and you know what, if those guys end up falling out because of this, then I'm sorry, but you probably should have addressed that already or before, right? Or change your own behavior, especially if it's like from the owners, not just employees. Um, but, but yeah, I, I struggle with this one because I think in a time where small business and a time where restaurants need more help, this, even with good intent, even if with decent execution, uh, feels like it is going to penalize more people than what's going to actually help. Um, yeah, well, I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Not to mention the, uh, the kind of vernacular or the definitions part of this because which we haven't really touched on, but Yelp says in in the quote that I read um, you know a moment ago that they will take action when there's this kind of resounding evidence. But there's a lot of open questions about the kind of moderation, right? This is initially moderated by human beings. What counts for them as resounding evidence? And you know what constitutes because they're going to refer the incident um, you know to credible media outlets. So what constitutes Credible media outlets, right? So all of these questions, and they, they they go on, by the way, to further say that they expect that these alerts will be rare and, quote, can appear for days or several weeks. It just seems like they haven't sort of baked their own stuff. And that's why I feel that it also falls into this yeah. category of, you know, kind of cringe versus courageous. I understand the motivation behind it. And I would, you know— I, I I can see the value in knowing, hey, I'm about to patronize a business where something has happened, but I also know it from the standpoint of growing up as a kid with a dad who ran a small business and seeing some of the crazy things that happen with just client business exchanges, Sure. sometimes super unreasonably, sometimes having to do with employees, and I just know that this can, to my mind, have the tendency of really hurting more than it helps, and I think that's why I'm against it. Yeah, I agree with you. 
All right. So that's quite a bit. Computer chips, ice chips, and potato chips. And uh, who knows? We ran out of chips to talk about, but uh, but we covered a lot. Is there kind of a, a sort of a one-sentence summary of any of this stuff or, or high-level thoughts that you'd leave for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think for high-level thoughts, it's if we go back to the conversation we're having around diversity, both in you know, for Microsoft uh, as well as for the for hockey and even the you know and even uh, NASCAR. I think in all of these, the orientation towards actional action is always preferred. The orientation towards things that are can be measured, I think, is definitely preferred. Um, and I think it's, it behooves all those different organizations to actually put real things in, into effect. But but I think part of the the efforts there can just be at the end of the rainbow meaning just at the hiring process, you really have to go back to the beginning. Yeah. And in all of these cases, I think if there is a theme that I want to be able to pull or highlight will be is that if you really want to address the diversity gaps within each one of these scenarios, it is going to require long-term thinking, long-term investment to create the mechanism, the opportunities to be able to bring in more diverse people earlier in the in the, in the careers, even before, maybe in some cases, before they get to their to professional careers, to develop the pipelines that are required so that these become more viable routes for them to pursue. And the businesses, I think, will benefit tremendously. I mean, you think about the the NHL. They have this kid who is, you know, came in second overall, who's, I think, like 6'4". He's 18 kid, years old, young kid. 18 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do I think that the NHL will be a better league if they had more access to more types of players? Absolutely. Absolutely, right? I mean, if the NHL had the, the level of access to the, the quality of athletes that the NFL has, right, in much broad, broad, much more diverse in terms of the, the, the type of athletes that go through that pipeline, I just think there will be a better league altogether. So I think the leagues will benefit from that. I agree. And it's great to see this kid there. And I think, once again, I'm very hopeful. This is one where I'm, I'm obviously looking at the, the positive side of, of this conversation, which I'm very hopeful that this is a signal to all the young kids who maybe are considering, who maybe do grow are growing up in those in those cities where hockey is more popular, to look at this as a possible route. Seeing that you have now this kid representing sort of this new generation, and, and hopefully it's a star. I mean, that'll be the best thing. I think the worst thing, unfortunately, and this is the part that falls on on folks like him, is that if he is a bust coming in as as a second overall, what does that then mean to all other? diverse kids coming up through the pipeline of, of hockey and, and will you now have owners, teams being more hesitant and, be, and, and, and wanting to uh, draft you know, someone that is diverse that high in the in, in the polls. I mean, that's that unfortunately is a, is a side effect and the downside of having this, which is why I really hope that he's, he's really good. I think that there's nothing more powerful than the idea of somebody young seeing somebody who looks like them, has comes from backgrounds like them, has the same experience achieving in a field that they're interested in. I don't think, you know, I think, uh, you know, Jack Johnson, Jackie Robinson, Jesse Owens, Muhammad Ali, like all of those guys, from a sports perspective, you look back and you go, oh, wow, you know, um, the first uh, uh, black NFL player was actually on in season one of the NFL, by the way. Um, so the very first season the NFL was around, and they actually won a national championship. Um, his name is Frederick Douglass. I'm forgetting his last name. His middle name was Douglass, named after the great abolitionist. But um, in any case, I thought about in 1919 or 1920, a black kid seeing this guy win, not just playing football, but right. being the only black guy on the team and winning a national championship the very first year the NFL is in existence. What impact did that have? 
it's got to be huge, right? So it's definitely important. And I also would kind of end on a, you know, a note of agreement as well with respect to the thing that I take from this episode is this idea of this continuum. Because if as business leaders, we tend to look at the moment of entry and put a real bias and emphasis on that, right? How are we hiring? What are the systems that allow us to bring people into the organization? And those kind of that moment of making contact, right? But there's a whole slew of stuff before that. And like think of it in the category of investing. You gotta have a whole slew of things before that and a whole slew of things after the point of contact. It is a continuum. And you have to have a plan for the continuum, not just a plan for how big or narrow or wide or whatever the door is coming into the organization. And I think if we can make that kind of pivot and think about it more as a continuum, we'll probably all be better off. Yeah, and I think if you're someone like a Microsoft, like a NHL, like any of these major, major leagues, you're looking out at the next 50 years, maybe beyond that. And how do you stay competitive, successful? So they have, I think, the resources and, and really have the long-term or should have the long-term plan to think about, you know, how to be able to succeed, to want to invest, not just in what could impact in the next two years, but what could impact the next 50 years. Well said. Well, we thank everybody for listening and joining us again on this episode of the Diversity Remix. We will see you again next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.